Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by this message from the Nichols Road Campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. All right. Well, thank you, Bill, and Happy New Year! And uh, Bill did such a great job introducing the series. I'm just going to skip that portion. And we are uh, launching the series or basing this series from a passage in the letter to the Colossians in the New Testament, chapter 2, verse 6 through 10. And so over the next eight weeks, we'll look at eight different uh, sections of that or phrases. But to kick it off, let's start by reading it together. Would you all stand with me? And we're going to read from the NIV translation, as is projected up there on the screen. Are you ready? So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Colossians was a letter written to the people. Actually, it was a a church in the city of Colossae, which was a Greek city. Just to give a little background, a historical uh, setting here is important. Colossae was a a very significant city in ancient times. But by the time this letter was written, it had actually become much, much smaller and was no longer as significant either economically. It was was, uh, population had decreased. Um, So it's kind of like, you know, a has-been city. It used to be big, it used to be the center of commerce for the whole region, but now other cities, actually Ephesus, uh, who uh, some of us have been to Ephesus. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Ephesus is great. I, sh- I should have had a picture of Ephesus because it, it, it was covered with dirt and then excavated, and you can walk down the very streets that Paul walked down, the early Christians walked down, and you can see the buildings. The only things that are missing really are the roofs, which are all collapsed, but um, you can see it. Colossae <clears throat> was about 100 miles away from Ephesus and also just about 10 miles from Laodicea. Both of those two churches are, are mentioned in Scripture quite frequently, <clears throat> and it's right in the region of the, the churches that are mentioned in Revelations. This, this region was uh, uh, one of the central, uh, uh, most important areas because Paul had uh, gone to Ephesus and gotten some people saved and stayed there for, I think, three years and had an amazing revival. And from Ephesus, sent teams out to evangelize all of the cities in that entire part of Asia. And so Colossae was was very likely one of those churches planted by a man named um, Epaphras. Paul had not actually been to Colossae himself. So this letter is written to a small church in what had become a smaller, less influential city in Asia Minor. And if you want to know what it looks like, that's it. Boy, isn't that exciting? 
<laughs> Here's another picture, a little more better angle. Uh, and it all that's all it is now. It's just a big mound of dirt. They know buried under that, that is, the perspective is a little hard. That's massive, okay? It's a giant, giant hill. Because underneath of that are the Roman ruins of the city. And they just haven't gotten around to, to digging it up. That's what Ephesus looked like when it was first discovered. It was just a big mound of dirt, and then they found out, oh, it's a big city. And they, they, they dug it up. And so, um, in fact, I read, uh, um, actually, I listened to a commentator who had been there, and he's like, right now, when he was there, a farmer was farming, had crops on top of the city. You know, who knows what's buried under there? You know, because there was a church there, and there was, it was actually a rather famous uh, church that had been built there, and worshipers were there for many years. But earthquakes and wars eventually led to the city being abandoned. And the people moved to the more um, newer cities, uh, Laodicea, Ephesus, and others. And so over the ages, it just got covered up with dirt. Um, it was known in its day as a, a place where there was influences of Greek philosophy, Roman political structure, and, and, and uh, you know the Roman Empire, as well as the Jewish cultural religion was very, very influential in this whole region. And so the town was known for its fusion of religious influences, um, Jewish, Gnostic, as well as many pagan influences. One thing that was kind of interesting is that there was a cult there that worshipped the archangel Michael. That's something you don't run into today. <laughs> like, full on, they just worshipped uh, Michael as an angel and, and, and to the point where he became a, a pagan deity, even though he's referenced in Scripture. Uh, they had carried it way too far. And so Paul's writing to this letter. Can you imagine writing to a group of, of former Gentiles? Some of them probably were in that cult. Others were just total pagans worshiping one of the various Roman or Greek gods, and then others, Jewish converts to Christianity, and trying to get them to to be rooted in Christ, to build their foundation of their faith and their lives on the person of Jesus Christ. And so the, the letter was written to warn them of pagan deities and the influence of pagan religions on their Christianity, to warn them about Christian philosophies. In fact, the only place in the, in the Bible where the word philosophy is used is in the book of uh, Colossians, <clears throat> because it was significant. Greek philosophy was argued and, and, and debated as well as the Jews who were attempting, the Jewish Christians, actually, who were attempting to get Gentile converts to Christianity to follow all of the laws of the Torah. And so in the midst of this uh, uh, culture, and this uh, society where there were all these competing thoughts, Paul was writing this letter uh, to bring clarity and direction to this early church. But it's not just Paul, because if you read the opening of the letter, it's actually co-authored by Timothy, who was Paul's spiritual son, later pastored the church in Ephesus. And with them was a guy named John Mark, who's very important because he wrote the Gospel of Mark, all right? And this guy named Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, in, a in, a, in addition to several other of the early church leaders. 
So they were all there together. We don't know where Paul was. If it was later in his life, he would have been in Rome. But some scholars believe that it could have been one of the first letters written while he was in prison in Ephesus, which was just 100 miles away. Uh, and, and there was a lot of commerce and trade and, and transport uh, between those two cities. <clears throat> but just think, the collaboration of the author of the book of Luke and Acts, the author of Mark, uh, <clears throat> as well as Paul and Timothy, say, hey, let's, let, let's write a letter to this, this small church. It was a small church. Uh, it probably was smaller than our church. Uh, and they collaborated together to instruct them on how to live in this confusion, confusing, difficult tension of a competition of different belief systems, different political systems, all the, all the influences of life. And guess what? It's written to us, a smaller church in a really small city. I mean, Kalamazoo is a, a small city. It has some significance, but it's not compared to the massive New York City and massive cities of the world. And so in a very, very real sense, <clears throat> it's written to you and I, because we, like the early church in Colossae, are facing the same tensions, aren't we? We're in, a, in the midst of a culture where there's all kinds of competing philosophies and uh, uh, religious ideas and worldviews uh, that are, are fighting for the stage, saying, no, this is the right way to think, this is the right way to act. And this letter is written to give us some clarity on how to respond to uh, that tension. <clears throat> so in verse 5, right before the passage that we're going to use as the launching pad for the next eight weeks, or this week and the next seven weeks, is verse, uh, verse 5, <clears throat> and it says, For though I am absent from you in the body, Paul's writing, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith is in Christ. And so he draws attention to their good order. A lot of the translations uh, translate that, to, to your good order. Um, and he then uh, identifies eight aspects of their orderliness, and that's the topic of our sermon Eight different aspects of having your faith in order. The first one is received Christ Jesus as Lord. Second is continue to live your lives in Him, being rooted, being built up, strengthened in the faith, overflowing with thankfulness. Uh, see to it that no one takes you captive. And the eighth one is in Christ you've been brought to fullness. So we're going to actually take each one of these words or phrases as the topic for each sermon. And today we get to uh, delve into what does this mean that we have received Christ Jesus as Lord. Now, Jesus quoted Deuteronomy in saying that, you know, uh, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we're going to actually look at the every word of this phrase <laughs> this morning, all right? Are you ready? Uh, the first word is received. And I, I want you to, again, what I like to do with Scripture and when I teach is to uh, encourage us to slow down and, and think a little deeper 
about these words because every word is inspired and important and we need to understand uh, what's really being said here and the word received is a very significant uh, term that is used not only here but throughout the New Testament. In the Greek it means to receive near or to associate oneself with in a familiar or intimate act or relationship. So it's, it's, it's very uh, intimate. It's personal. Okay, It's not like receiving a Facebook friend all right, or an Instagram follower. You can follow. Uh, I make this mistake. I've mentioned it before. These, there's this young couple that lives in Japan. I love to go to Japan. I've been going there for many years. And so years ago, I, I came across their YouTube channel. And uh, it's just them doing life. Two American young people, <coughs> about the age of my, my daughter. And, uh, and so I, I watched almost all their videos and have for years. And I often call them my friends. <laughs> I think of them as friends. I mean, I, I watch them go to the, the, the convenience stores and pick out snacks and <laughs> drive around town. What's really cool is that he got, they got into bicycling. You know, like I'm like some of you don't know, but I'm long, my whole my entire life I've bicycled, long distance bicycling. They even bought the same brand bike that I ride, and now he's in the motorcycling. <laughs> I think yeah, if, if they knew me, they would like me. <laughs> but that's not personal. They don't know me. It's weird that I even think that. Every time I think that, I think that's weird. You are a creepy old guy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. uh, one commentary <coughs> says that he says not merely he received the doctrine of Christ, but Jesus himself. They didn't just accept this idea or this theology. No, 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 no. They've received the person, Jesus Christ. And 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 <coughs> and it, it's almost like, you know, it's it's one thing to, to, to get to know someone, you know, through information only. Like, I've never met certain people other than through news reports or whatever. And then to meet them in person, wow, you know. Uh, I've met Bill Johnson, or, you know. But John or not, you know, I call a friend. I've been to his house, all right, uh, you know. And then even though, you know, in our stream he's rather famous in certain things. But I haven't met huge famous people. But even more than that, how about a personal, like Jesus is going to move into your house and just live with you for the rest of your life. Even more than that, he's going to move into you. And that's what it's talking about. It's We've received him. And so it speaks of the importance of a personal relationship. In the first century church, when they read this letter, when they heard these words, they knew exactly what that meant. All right? That it had the the, the, the emphasis of personal relationship. Christianity is not another competing philosophy, all right, for their attention or their uh, uh, agreement on an a intellectual level. It's an intimate relationship with a real person. Jesus said, he, he who receives you receives me, speaking to his disciples, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me, his Father. And so said, the whole of Christianity, you know, um, <clears throat> witnessing, evangelizing, 
is not about selling someone on a product. Right? It's about developing a relationship with people that don't know Jesus yet so that you can introduce them to your, to your friend and Lord Jesus. Right? And so if we change the way we think about evangelism and witnessing and see it the way Jesus saw it, it, it changes the whole dynamics of how we relate to one another. Receiving is very, very different than achieving or obtaining. Right? Uh, <clears throat> the nature of faith is that it is a gift, right? In Ephesians, Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, saying it this way, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God. But even a gift, you know, if I have a gift for someone, it has to be received, all right? And the way I see this is that receiving a gift is completely passive. It's not something I've achieved. It's not something I've obtained. It's not something I've earned. That just puts it in my hands. But I do have an option. I can reject it. And that is an act, okay? That takes a, a choice. There's an exercise of your will to reject. Where a gift... There's no, there's no, um, <clears throat> there's, we don't earn it. There's no credit to us by receiving something that is freely given. We just receive it. And so uh, those who reject the free gift of salvation are fully responsible because they have, they have to act. Their will is engaged by rejecting the gift. But those who receive it, like we can't say it's, it's our credit. It's not a credit to us. Does that make sense? <clears throat> All right. And so rejecting the free gift is the same sin that Adam and Eve did in the garden. Okay, when they, when they rejected God uh, as their source of everything. Think of it. They were in a world, everything was provided by God for free. But they chose to believe a lie and, and, and think that they didn't need God. All right? And that was the source of all sin. Well, that's replayed in our lives when we either receive or reject Jesus Christ as Lord. So grace and faith, they're not a reward. They're not an achievement. They're not something you uh, accomplish. They're something you simply receive. And we can't be rooted in Christ unless we have received, unless we've acknowledged this and respect that. In uh, uh, Corinthians, Paul says that for the, uh, this is 1 Corinthians 3.10, by the grace God has given me, this is Paul writing the same idea or similar idea to the church in Corinth, also a, a, a Roman city, says, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, but someone else is building on it. Each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one that is already laid, which is Jesus Christ, all right? So the idea here is that the only thing that we can be rooted in, that we can really have confidence that our life, our faith is built in something that's lasting, that's something that will endure, is if it's built, if it's rooted in Jesus Christ. And it's something that is given, something that we receive. All right, the next word is Christ Jesus. Did you know that Christ is not Jesus' last name? All right? <laughs> it's also not a curse word. All right? Jesus Christ. 
holy word. It's his name. Christ is actually his title. It's a title. And in the Greek, it means anointed. Right? And, and literally, the priests were anointed with oil. And again, in the original language, that would have caused the listener to see a person anointed with oil. And it was a very, very important part of the uh, Jewish religion to receive that anointing. It distinguished them as apart, separated for a particular purpose. Uh, and Christ is the anointed one, specifically referring to the uh, Messiah. Jesus is the Hebrew word uh, uh, Jehovah saves, or I like the better phrasing, Jehovah is salvation. All right, And Jehovah is one way we pronounce the, the I am, the Yahweh uh, uh, name of God that we have learned from the Old Testament. Jesus came talking to his disciples in Matthew 16, uh, in, uh, and he asked his disciples, you know, who, who do people say that I am? What, what's going around? You guys are with, you know, in communication with others. <clears throat> what are they saying? And their answer in verse 14 was, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. By this time, John the Baptist had been beheaded, uh, and so they're like, like, John the Baptist came back, or his anointing did. Uh, others say Elijah, one of the famous Old Testament prophets. Others say Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. And he said, what about you? And this is Peter's famous saying. Peter answered, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus responded to him and said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of uh, Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. What Jesus was saying there is that that was a gift. You didn't figure that out. All right? You didn't come up with that on your own. You weren't convinced of it. God revealed it to you. That Jesus is Christ, son of the living God. He is the anointed one. He's not merely a good teacher. He's more than just a religious leader. He's Christ, the term anointed, the, the anointed one, the Messiah. And I just want to challenge us today, especially in our circle, in the charismatic, spirit-filled church, we use the term anointed kind of loosely. You know, like, boy, that was, a, that was an anointed worship song. And I love this music. I, I keep repeating it on my playlist because it's so anointed. And often what we mean by that is that we, we get an emotional response by it. It gives us goosebumps or something. You know? And I'm like, guys, we got to realize that's really lowering <laughs> the definition of anointed to something that triggers me emotionally. All right? when it is the most exalted title in the universe and outside of the universe, okay? is Jesus. He's the Christ. And so we, as Christ followers, need to recognize that any true anointing from God will come in and through Jesus Christ and point to him, all right? That, that's anointing, is when it reveals Jesus, when it causes person who is hearing or experiencing the song, the sermon, whatever it may be, 
to encounter Jesus in a personal, intimate way. And it roots our faith. This is why it's so important um, that we see Jesus, the anointed Messiah, in the person of Jesus, an actual human that was born and lived in an actual small town in the middle of uh, uh, what is now uh, Israel at a specific time. It's rooted in a historical event. Again, remember, it's coming against all of these philosophies, all of these ideas that are competing for attention. And uh, I was talking to someone not too long ago that was um, giving themselves to a very popular um, uh, uh, societal idea, philosophy, lifestyle in our day. And I just challenged him. I said, uh, I said, you're, you're part of a, an experiment, um, a, a sociological experiment. And people have done experiments before, and they've failed. Okay? It's like, it's like the whole Soviet Union was an experiment. Somebody had an idea that they thought was really good. And there was actually some good parts to it. But then it got corrupted, right? And it became really bad. And there's different uh, uh, ex- ideas that people just come up with. And there's a, we live in a, a time where it's, now anybody can publish their idea and have it spread throughout the whole world, you know, instantly. And so we, more than anyone else, need to be careful that we don't <coughs> miss the real meaning and the real purpose for what God wants us to be rooted in and understand that Jesus uh, um, receiving Christ Jesus is, is connected to something that's historically reliable. Uh, does that make sense? All right. It's not just a philosophy. It's not just a religion. It's a person. And apart from intimate relationship with that person, you don't know salvation. You don't know God. All right. There's no other way. Um, <clears throat> And then the main word that we want to get to is Lord. All right? The definition for this is supreme in authority. All right? Uh, that, it says that is, this is right from a dictionary, uh, controller, uh, God, Lord, master. Another dictionary says, he to whom a person or thing belongs about which he has power of deciding. He's the master. He's the possessor and the disposer of any one or thing. He owns it, and he can get rid of it if he wants to. Um, He has control of the person. He's the master. In a state setting, it's the sovereign prince, a Roman emperor. Uh, And, of course, this is the title to God. It's the title to Messiah. I think this is the hardest word probably in the Bible for us to understand. What is the 21st century equivalent of Lord? What Lord do you encounter? Is there anything or anyone that owns you? Doesn't it kind of stir up a little bit of a, yeah, give it your best shot, right? 
We, we are so separated from this idea, culturally and historically, that we don't even have a, a frame of mind. We don't have a way to understand what it means for someone to have complete authority over someone else. In fact, we think that is obnoxious and horrible. Yet God and Jesus says that's who he is. He's Lord. He gets to decide everything. And if it's, he decides, you know, it's time for you to go, it's time for you to go. He doesn't ask your opinion. He doesn't ask you to agree. He doesn't have to convince you. You do what he says. And if you don't, he's not your Lord. Jesus to his disciples, I love this. One of, one of the phrases Jesus used, I love it. When he, when he asked his disciples, he looked at him, he says, I'd love, I can't wait to hear the, uh, the see the holographic re, re, reproduction of it in heaven, you know? <laughs> Not the video, you can't say videotape, but you can't say DVD anymore. <laughs> you know, what did Jesus' voice sound like when he looked at his disciples and said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't even do what I say? You know, what was his tone of voice? Yeah, he might have been laughing. You call me Lord, but you don't even do what I say. And so even in their day, they struggled with this idea. Our society is built on the rejection of lordship. Okay? We elect our rulers. And if they tell us to do something that we don't agree, we just don't do it. And we're proud of it. Okay? Listen, that won't fly with Jesus. Okay? What would have been the idea in the day of the Colossians? Well, they had some real clear examples. Every day they saw Roman soldiers that represented the Roman authority, that represented Caesar, which was a lord. That at any moment, if the commander said, execute that person, you were just executed. No appeal process. If, you, if you're a Roman citizen, there was an appeal process. But even then, ultimately it came down to, eh, you're dead, or you're crucified, or you lose everything. They had total authority. There's nothing in our culture. And then in this, their day, there were slaves. It was a common economic system where people were owned by other people. And thank God that the New Testament, especially in the whole of Scripture, teaches an understanding of humanity that makes us reject slavery as something that is unholy and unwholesome and unproductive. But in their day, they understood it because they either were a slave or were slave. They owned slaves. Paul talks about slavery and how to deal with it, both to the slave and to the slave owner in this later in this letter. And so they had a, a better cultural understanding of it. But we, we simply don't. All right? <clears throat> Calling Jesus Lord was the real reason why the early church was so persecuted. 
In fact, in, in Luke 23, 1, the life of Jesus, when he was brought uh, before Pilate, uh, says that the whole multitude of them, the, the people that the Jews, Jewish leaders had stir up, stirred up, uh, arose and led him to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, something which Jesus didn't do, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar's. Anyone who claims to be a king is opposed to Caesar. So what was being presented there was a competition between who is going to be Lord, Caesar or Jesus. And of course, Pilate was like, he, he, Caesar was his Lord. Because if he violated the will of Caesar and Caesar found out, Pilate would be dead. And so I want us to understand the significance of what it means when we call Jesus Christ Lord. When it says, you know, the good order that's in your life that Paul talks about to the church in Colossae began with them receiving Christ Jesus as Lord. Without that essential ingredient, nothing else matters. But how can we accept Jesus as Lord if we don't know what Lord means? And quite frankly, I, I was thinking the day on the way into church, I'm like, I don't think I know anyone that really gets this, myself included. You know, if Jesus tells me something or I, you know, I read something in Scripture, there's always a, I have to agree to it. You know, I mean, how many of us can say that we do everything we know God's called us to do? without question, immediately. Well, if we don't, is Jesus our Lord? Now, it's, I'm not saying if there's things you, you're not sure about. I'm not sure if Jesus has called me to do this. I'm not sure I understand this. That's okay. Jesus has, there's grace for that. Thankfully, there's grace for all of us, all right? But when we come right down to it, if you accept Christ Jesus as Lord, that means anything and everything that Jesus says, anything and everything that is communicated to us in Scripture, we do without question. If we feel differently, we subject that feeling or that idea or that desire, we throw it out. And we say, I am serving Christ Jesus as Lord. I am not going to allow anything else to compete with his rule in my life. And when anything comes up, rises up in my life, that challenges something Jesus. And you know what the, the enemy and our flesh and the world, they're really tricky. Because they don't challenge a big thing. They challenge you on little things. Right? Just, you know, I mean, who's going to know? It's all right just to indulge a little bit here. Because nobody's going to know. Yeah, but God says I'm not supposed to do that. Yeah, but, you know, there's grace. 
You know, and so when you start giving in in little things, you say a little lie here. You allow your mind, your heart, your body to, to desire something that's not yours. It's called lust or covetousness. All right? And you just, you don't squash it. You don't, you don't get offended by, you don't get like, you don't go, oh, that's horrible. I don't want to have any part of that. You know? You go, oh, yeah, wow, that'd be nice. Are you hearing me? Right? That's where lordship comes in. Because, you know, these guys in the first century, they, they had to face, you know, lion's dens and, uh, and the Colosseum and, and literally being crucified. You know, it, it wasn't too far away from them. And, and in fact, the, the people of Colossae, it was after this letter was written that some of the worst persecution happened in the Roman Empire. They had to stand up. Listen, calling Jesus Lord in the first century was one of the most courageous things that someone could do. It was standing up against the whole world's system of political authority and power. All right? Because it was saying, there's, you know, there's Caesar, but he's not the ultimate Lord. Jesus is. And so in the Roman Empire, that's treason. You, could be, you were arrested, and you were tried. And if found guilty, you were executed. All right? Uh, it was courageous. It was standing against the most powerful religious leaders, both the pagan influences as well as the Jewish influences that had incredible power. And to stand up and say, no, Jesus Christ. The reason it was offensive to the Jews is because that title was reserved to Yahweh. And they saw that Jesus, uh, not as Lord, he was, yeah, he was a rabbi, he was a teacher. That's why they crucified him, because he claimed to be God, but he was God. All right? So it's standing against political uh, authorities, it's standing against religious authorities, it's standing against the cultural norms and the accepted philosophies and ideas that were so prevalent in their day and in our day, all right? And the truth is, it takes courage today to stand up and call Jesus Lord. And and saints, (laughs) we we need to think about it. We need to allow the idea of lordship to really, uh, we need to be steeped in it, saturated in it, saturated by it. How many are doing the fasting? You know, I, 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 love, I have a love-hate relationship with fasting, all right? Because I hate starting a fast. <laughs> uh, because it's hard, you know? And Justin said it. It messes up your whole body. Uh, But it brings under submission your appetites, especially if you do, you know, a significant food fast where you don't eat any food or, or just a little bit of food. And it's amazing to me, um, how much we turn to food to fill time and it's really entertainment in our day, where we live. It's like I'm bored. I'm, I'll eat something. <laughs> you know, what a privileged world we live in, when we can just go and pick out something to eat. Uh, so 
But when we say no to that, we're, we're, we're forcing our physical body to come into submission to a decision that we're going we're gonna to set that aside so that we can connect with Jesus as Lord better for this season, to, to be rooted deeper. And, and so that's something we do from time to time to focus whatever you're setting aside, fasting from, <clears throat> it, it challenges who is or what is really your Lord. And that's true in every aspect of your life, your finances, your time, your friendships, your allegiances, your political decisions, every aspect needs to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ, that he rules. He fundamentally has to transform every aspect of our lives. Is every thought subject to Jesus? Well, I'm not there yet, are you? Is every action submitted to Jesus? Far from it. What's my response? I want to pursue him more. I want to understand him more. Hudson Taylor was a missionary, and he said, Christ is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. And as Christ followers, we need to come into a relationship with the person, Christ Jesus, and recognize that it is personal, it is intimate, and it is authoritative. And that every aspect of our life should reflect Jesus as Lord. It should be evidenced in every decision, in every word. Uh, Romans, Paul says in the book of Romans, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Let's say that together out loud. Jesus is Lord. Easy to say, hard to live. Okay? But by confessing it, whatever you talk, whatever you speak, you, you empower. And so every day, Jesus is my Lord. Every decision, in some way, we need to allow Lordship of Jesus to influence that decision. Every action. And then it it seeps down to every emotion should be governed by this personal, intimate lordship of Jesus. Jesus said he would come and live in us. The spirit that's given is the spirit of Christ in us. And so even our innermost thoughts and emotions must be submitted. Paul said if you confess Jesus as Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, that is salvation. That is freedom from death. That is freedom from sin. That is freedom from decay. That is life everlasting with him. Right? What? This. Seeing Jesus as Lord. Apart from Jesus' lordship, there is no life. With Jesus' Lord, there's salvation, wholeness, and freedom. Well, next week we're going to talk about what it means to live in him and, and, and expound that. And we're going to take the next uh, seven weeks to delve further into the scripture. Bill, you can come up and close. Thanks, great job. All right, guys. This is where it's at. I've been 
hinting or dropping in little things in sermons for many months on this topic, but to spend that quality time on Jesus as Lord is so important for us. Cameron said it really well, but I'm just saying it again. I think this might be one of the top issues that keeps people out of the kingdom of heaven in our culture. (laughs) Right? America in this day and age is built to make you your own God. Right? Even the religious aspect of our culture, it says pick and choose what what resonates with you and live your truth. That is not Christianity, guys. And every other aspect of life, whether it's how you spend your money, how you shop, you know, the grocery store, you just go. And it's all about appealing to yourself and your wants and your desires. Cameron's right. Fasting helps us break out of that and say, my God is not my belly. That's from a Paul letter too. But you're my Lord. When you tithe faithfully, you're saying consistently, I'm not going to commit to that culture. I'm not going to lord my finances. I'm going to give you the first and best and trust you with the rest and trust that your favor and provision will provide. And it's a lordship thing. When you wake, if, if you go to your phone daily, I've been guilty of this in the past. And it's one of the things I'm focusing on with prayer and fasting I'm going there first. I don't want my phone to be Lord of the first minutes of my day, right? And it's, I'm not saying it to get on your case, but like it's, Jesus says some scary stuff sometimes, like this one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so I can't come here every Sunday and say, I worship you, Lord, and then go give more of the time to the thing in my pocket or more of my funny money to just feed my desires. It's not congruent. It's not consistent. And, and the, the culture is just against us on this one, guys. There's grace. There's mercy that is new every morning. It's not like if you make a mistake or you've been making mistakes, you got to go f- feel shame and whip yourself on the back a certain number of times to be saved. But we got to realize the truth. And what joy there is when he is Lord, it unlocks the promises of God in your life. What did Jesus say he came to do? To give you a full abundant life in John 10, right? Eternal life, love, joy, the fruits of the spirit, which sound really good. Who needs a little peace (laughs) in a time of an anxious world all around us? We all do. Those are unlocked when Jesus is Lord. Otherwise, you're trying to scrap it together on your own. That's what that really is. Uh, Will you stand and join me? Let's just pray into this a moment, okay? Let's respond to it. It's a tough truth for us to wrap our heads around, and it's an even harder truth to bow our knee to. Let's do our best right now, okay, as a family. God, we pause right now to realize the truth that you're God, creator of time, matter, space, everything that we can see and touch. You made it. You made us. You formed each of us in the womb. When we were conceived, you were there and active. You're that God. You're outside of time and space. You're bigger than it. You made it. And Lord, you are Lord. You're Lord, King. 
You rule over the nations. You rule over history. You will rule forever on a throne. And it has always been your will to provide life, love, and relationship to us. You have always wanted to bless someone, to bless a family, to bless a nation, to bless the world. You are good. To, to have that goodness be ours, we need to make you Lord. And it's hard for us to do. God, I confess, it is hard for me to do. Every day I wake up in my own hunger, my own desires, even the ones that aren't so directly evil, they compete with you. But right here, right now, Lord, we just bow the knee of our desires, of ourself to you. I say, Jesus, you're Lord. I'm going to do my best today to make it be so in my actions, in my thoughts. If you agree with that, just say it in your own words in a sentence or two. Amen. Good job, guys. I felt it as you prayed that in your words. And what I kind of saw a picture of was the, like the tree roots going down. Like if you prayed and meant, Jesus, you're my Lord, and I'm going to do my best to live that way, your roots went down into him. You are stronger than you were two seconds ago. So may the Lord bless you with grace and strength to do what you just said you're going to do. And it's an honor to do it together with you guys. As we dismiss this morning, I just want to remind you, if you'd like to receive prayer or rhema ministry, that's available right here um, on this side of the room, or you can use the link online to connect with the prayer team. If you want to help take down the Christmas decorations, you're welcome to stick around and do that. I would encourage you first, do the most important thing, connect with one another, shake somebody's hand, especially say hi to somebody you don't know. And uh, otherwise you're dismissed to go do and be Christ in your community this week. Amen.